This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, happy Sabbath. Oh, let's try that again. Good morning, happy Sabbath. It's hard to believe that this is the first Sabbath of the new year 2015. And we recognize that Jesus is coming soon. Amen. There's a favorite quote from The Desire of Ages that I had the privilege of memorizing in Academy. And as we look forward to the future, it's a quote that I refer to. Desire of Ages 330. Worry is blind and cannot discern the future. But Jesus sees the end from the beginning. In every difficulty, he has his way prepared to bring relief. Our Heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide for us, of which we know nothing. Those who make the principle of the service and honor of God supreme will find perplexities vanish and a plain path before their feet. Amen. We recognize that we're living in a time when the future is uncertain, but in the hands of God, we can be assured that He will see us through to the end. I want to invite you, before we open the Word of God here this morning, to bow your heads with me as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together on this, the first Sabbath of the new year, 2015. We recognize that we are living in momentous times and that the destiny of Earth's teeming multitudes is about to be decided. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to the calling that you've given to us as the people of God. Help us, we pray. This morning, as we open your word, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that Jesus would be uplifted and Christ would be seen. We pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and enlighten our minds. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1940, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Mortimer Adler wrote a book that he called a classic guide to intelligent reading. Dr. Adler was the chair of the board of editors for Encyclopedia Britannica, and he had a burning desire to teach individuals to become skilled and proficient readers. In his book, Dr. Adler contends that the first thing that you should do when you pick up a book is not begin by reading chapter one. He said you should open it to the table of contents 
first and get the overall outline of the book, the general skeleton, and then he said you should always, always read the introduction. When I first read this, I thought of all the times that I would open a book and skip the introduction and start with chapter one because I thought that it was unimportant. Dr. Adler argues that the reason that you should always read the introduction of a book is because in the introduction, most of the time, the editor or the author will put the purpose of the book. The reason why the book was written is most of the time found in the introduction, and he argues that we must know why the book was written before we can know the contents of the book. Introductions should not be skipped, they should be studied. And the introduction of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist is of no exception, and I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to what I believe is the most important introduction in human history, John chapter 1 and verse 29. The introduction of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist. I'll be reading from the New King James Bible. You can follow along in whatever Bible you have there. Here it is. The words of John the Baptist regarding Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This introduction is pregnant with meaning. And I think to myself, if only the Jews had meditated upon, studied, not missed, and perhaps even done their doctoral dissertation on these 13 words history could have been altered. Because in John's introduction, we find the purpose of the Messiah. And because the Jews missed the introduction, misunderstood the purpose of Jesus Christ, they ended up killing the Messiah. It would do us well to look more closely at John's introduction. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this verse, you find the role that Jesus is to take. He said, Jesus is the Lamb of God. The function of the role is to take away sin. The Lamb. Its function is to take away sin. There's a different phrase that John could have used. He could have said, Jesus is the lamb that eradicates sin, deletes sin, expunges sin, and these would have not necessarily have been inaccurate theologically. But Jesus is referred to the lamb, and the lamb's function is to take away sin. When you take something, the implication is that you're taking possession of that entity. 
if I take your debt, I am taking possession of your debt, and the implication is that the debt is being transferred from you to me. There is a transference of possession. And the whole plan of salvation is predicated on the notion that there is a transference of sin. The transfer of sin is possible, in this case, from the world, it's transferred to the Lamb. That is how the Lamb takes away sin. The concept of the Lamb taking away sin was not a foreign concept to the first century Jew. This was not an alien concept. This was not a concept that was new to them. It was very familiar. For, for 1,500 years, they had participated in a service in which they saw the role and the function of the Lamb. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4, verse 32 to 34, one of the places where it is illustrated the function of the Lamb to take away sin. Leviticus chapter 4, Verse 32 through 34, if he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring it a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering and place it at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. The sinner brings in the lamb to the sanctuary. He places his hands on the head of that lamb, confessing his sins onto the lamb. He, with his own hand, slits the throat of the lamb from ear to ear. The priest is there, catches the blood, the priest then ministers the blood on his behalf, and it's placed on the horns of the altar. Notice that in order to take away sin, there are three parties that have to be involved. The sinner has to accept that the lamb becomes his substitute. The lamb must die, and then the priest must administer the blood on the sinner's behalf. Three parties, the sinner, the lamb, and the priest. In this verse, you see that there is a path to the transference of sin. The sin goes from the sinner to the lamb to the blood and then is carried by the priest to the sanctuary. The sanctuary holds the record of the sin that has been forgiven. There is a transference, a path from which the sinner transfers his sin to the lamb, to the blood, to the sanctuary. And for the only way for the Jews to understand the introduction of Jesus as the Messiah was if they had used the sanctuary as their key to interpret John's introduction. The only way 
for the Jews to understand what Jesus did on the cross was if they used the sanctuary as their roadmap. It was to be their lens for doing theology. It was to be the framework and ultimate reference point for understanding the purpose of the Messiah. The sanctuary was the interpretive key to unlock the purpose of Christ. And for over 1,500 years, the entire Jewish economy centered on the sanctuary. They were literally sitting on the key to unlock the Messiah for over 1,500 years, and yet they missed the Son of God. The sanctuary was to be their interpretive key to understand the Christ. My fear is that perhaps 2,000 years later, we are in danger of making the same mistake that the Jews did over 2,000 years ago. But you say, come on, David, what faithful Seventh-day Adventist today doesn't believe in the sanctuary? It's part of our 28 fundamental beliefs. It's one of the pillars of the Adventist faith. We have Sabbath, sanctuary, state of the dead. We believe in the sanctuary as a doctrine. And my question to you this morning is, did the Jews believe in the sanctuary? Yes, they did. If you were to ask any Jew in the first century, do you believe in the sanctuary? They would almost be aghast. They would be almost offended that you would dare ask the question, of course I believe in the sanctuary. I would die for the sanctuary. Every year I participate in Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Tabernacles, Day of Atonement. I believe in the sanctuary. The issue with the Jews was that they believed in the sanctuary as a doctrine, but they weren't using it as their interpretive key. The issue with the Jews was that they believed in the sanctuary as a doctrine, but they were not using it as an interpretive key. And there is a fundamental difference between the two. A doctrine is something that you believe. An interpretive key is something which you use to determine what you believe. It is the lens through which you do theology. The Jews replaced the interpretive key of the sanctuary with liberation theology. They believed in the sanctuary, but they relegated it to a distinctive doctrine, and they replaced their hermeneutical lens for doing theology with a perspective of deliverance from the Romans rather than the deliverance from sin. And this fundamental mistake led them down the path to misinterpret and reject the Son of God. In 1994, an Adventist author wrote a book, 
And on the cover of, a book, of the book, there was the picture of four different Adventist thought leaders. When you open it to the introduction, the introduction is actually titled, and I quote, it's so confusing. And this particular Adventist author goes on to write that in the church today, the Adventist church, there are at least four different versions of the gospel. Four, according to his assessment, promulgated by this, these four different Adventist thought leaders. He goes on to write that just the fact that there are four different views of something as fundamental and rudimentary as the gospel shows us that there is a lack of consensus in the church today about something so basic as how is one saved? And the question arises in our minds, how is it that the church is in a relative state of confusion about the process of salvation? How do we get to the place where we are today? Dr. Fernando Canali, professor emeritus of theology and philosophy at Andrews Theological Seminary, wrote a compelling article that was published by the Adventist Theological Society. In his article, Dr. Canali makes the assessment that in the 1960s, there was a theological turn in Adventism in which we began to interpret the gospel, the gospel through the lens of evangelical tradition rather than the sanctuary. This is his assessment that in the 1960s there was a shift, not by everyone, but by a significant group of thought leaders in which we replaced the interpretive key of the sanctuary with the evangelical paradigm for interpreting the gospel. And he goes on, on to write his concern about this paradigm shift that took place. And I quote from that article, the subtle redefinition of the sanctuary doctrine's role from hermeneutical key to distinctive doctrine had far-reaching consequences in theological method. The gospel, as understood by evangelical tradition, became the hermeneutical key to interpret all doctrines. Seventh-day Adventists should be concerned about this because it is transforming the very essence and identity of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and its mission. Dr. Canali is making the argument that we're in danger of making the same mistake that the Jews did over 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, 
the Jews believed in the sanctuary as a distinctive doctrine, but they replaced that hermeneutical lens, that key, with liberation theology. And 2,000 years later, we also have been given the interpretive key of the sanctuary. And according to Dr. Canelli, we are in danger because some within our ranks have replaced the sanctuary with evangelical tradition. And he said this fundamentally when you play it all out, will change the identity of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Because if you remove the sanctuary as the interpretive key, it changes who we are. I believe that when we read evangelical authors, we need to be very careful. I'm not saying that our evangelical friends do not have some sublime and profound thoughts on the gospel, but we need to recognize that it is an incomplete gospel. They may say some positive and powerful things, but we need to recognize that they are coming from a framework that is fundamentally different than Seventh-day Adventists because they are not working from the totality of the sanctuary as the hermeneutical key for the gospel. Dr. Connelly says that changing the framework of the sanctuary for evangelical tradition is transforming the essence, the identity, and the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And my dear friends, we cannot afford to replace the sanctuary key with evangelical tradition as our framework for understanding. Some of you may be thinking, David, I hear what you're saying But wasn't the sanctuary supposed to be used to interpret the cross? And then after the cross, the sanctuary key is to be changed. We're to switch paradigms. I mean, that's before Christ. After Christ, we're supposed to use a different hermeneutical key. We're supposed to use a different framework. That was at the cross. Yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John used the interpretive key, and that was valid at the time, but we are now living after Jesus' death and resurrection. We are to use a different key, a different hermeneutical lens, and that is an argument that I hear many times. Yes, that's before the cross. After the cross, we need to shift paradigms. We need to shift interpretive keys. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. This is after the cross, after AD 31, after the resurrection. Paul is writing his epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, where? 
in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. This is after the cross, friends. Paul is establishing the reality that Jesus is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary which the Lord created and not man. The concept of the heavenly sanctuary is a biblical concept, friends. It's found in the book of Hebrews. It's found in the book of Revelation. And here Paul is establishing that Jesus, after the cross, is our high priest. What is Paul saying? The assumption here is that the cross is still to be the framework. I should say the sanctuary is still to be the framework after the cross for understanding what Jesus did after the cross upon his ascension as our high priest. It's not only the interpretive key for understanding the cross. It's to be the interpretive key for understanding what Jesus did upon his ascension as our high priest after A.D. 31. This is a New Testament principle. Paul is not changing hermeneutical keys after the cross. He's establishing that the sanctuary is still relevant, valid, and should be the framework for understanding what Christ did at A.D. 31 and after A.D. 31. Paul goes on, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come to be, passing through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made by hands, that is, not belonging to this creation. I don't know how anyone can believe there is no heavenly sanctuary. He entered once for all into the tabernacle, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The sanctuary is to be the interpretive key after the cross. And friends, this is what makes us Seventh-day Adventists. I affirm that the sanctuary is a distinctive doctrine, but I would argue that it is more than a distinctive doctrine. According to John the Baptist, according to Paul, it is to be the framework, the lens, the roadmap for doing theology. It is to be the reference point for what Jesus did at the cross and what Jesus is doing as our high priest. Ellen White, Great Controversy, page 423, and I quote, The subject of the sanctuary was the key. Let me read that again. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the great disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth 
connected, harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as brought to light the position and work of His people. This is the implication. John says that the sanctuary is the interpretive key for understanding the Lamb, the cross. Paul establishes that the sanctuary is to be the interpretive key for understanding Jesus as our high priest after AD 31. Ellen White establishes that the sanctuary is the interpretive key for understanding Jesus after 1844 to this present day in the investigative judgment. The cross, 8031, 1844, the same interpretive key, the sanctuary unlocks what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. It is to be our framework for our understanding. Last year, I had the privilege and opportunity of speaking in Japan. This is my first time to Asia. I'm Asian, American, never been there before. I'm Korean, went to Japan. I just, it ended up that way. I hope to go to Korea someday. I was in Tokyo at a speaking appointment, and since we had never been to Asia before, my wife and I tacked on some vacation time at the end and got on a bullet train and went down bravely to Kyoto to look at some sites down there. We got off the train found our hotel, left our luggage there, and then went back into the subway station to catch another local subway to tour some of the uh, tourist attractions in the city of Kyoto. That is when our vacation turned into a relative nightmare because we got lost for three hours in the subway station. I mean, there is nothing, I, don't, I shouldn't say nothing, this is an exaggeration, but to be in a foreign country and not speak the language, and you're wandering aimlessly in, in this subway station, walking around, we're tired, we're hungry, and th- for those of you that are married, you know what I'm talking about, you're starting to get frustrated, walking around, and, and I've never seen a, a subway station that was so mammoth. This thing was huge. I've never seen escalators that went up like seven stories in sections. We would get on the escalators, ride all the way to the top, and then ride all the way down, going everywhere. Every time we tried to speak to someone in English, they would go like this, and we are just, we're, we're at a loss. Because we did not understand where we were. Suddenly, we had a hermeneutical breakthrough. We found a map in English, praise God. And using that map, it opened Kyoto. We went on the bus system, subway system, 
went to every attraction. It was great. By the end, we were, we were joking amongst ourselves saying, you know what? We've mastered this thing so well. We really didn't. We should become American tourist guide for Kyoto. <laughs> the map became the key that unlocked Kyoto. It fundamentally changed our understanding and then altered our experience. And I want to tell you today, God has given us the map. It's time that we use it. We need to believe in it and use it. God has given us a gold mine in kindergarten form in the sanctuary, and we should not be going to the evangelicals to understand the gospel when God has given us the key. You cannot use a map of Paris to understand Kyoto. And we need to understand the sanctuary, friends. That is to be our framework to understand Christ at the cross. Christ after AD 31. And Christ after 1844. The sanctuary is the interpretive key for the gospel. All right, so the sanctuary is the interpretive key for understanding the gospel. What does that look like? What's the implication of using the sanctuary as our framework for understanding the work of Christ? I've asked them to put a slide of the sanctuary on the screen. I want to thank Eric Lowe for putting together this slide. It's a bird's eye view of the Mosaic Sanctuary. And I want to make a simple elementary observation. The sanctuary is divided into three different compartments. The courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. There you see it there on the screen. The courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. The courtyard has two articles of furniture, the altar, burnt offering, and the laver. The holy place has three articles of furniture, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the lampstand. And then the most holy place has the Ark of the Covenant. My question is, Adam and Eve, back in Edenic perfection, where were they before sin, irrespective to God's presence? They were in the most holy place. The book of Education says that Adam and Eve had open face-to-face communion with God. That is not possible today, friends. They were right there in the most holy place, face-to-face, open communion with God. After sin, Adam and Eve and the entire human race were placed, looking at the sanctuary, we were placed outside of the gate. We could no longer stand in the presence of God. We would become consumed. And thus, we can see that this sanctuary model presents to us in illustrative form that the process of salvation is about restoration. It is to bring us back to where Adam and Eve were face to face with God. 
And God does this in three phases. The courtyard, justification. God delivers us from the penalty of sin. The holy place, sanctification. God delivers us from the power of sin. The most holy place, glorification. God delivers us from the presence of sin. The theme of the sanctuary is restoration. Ellen White, Education, page 15 and 16. To restore in man the image of his maker. To bring him back. To bring him what? To bring him back to the perfection in which he was created. To promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. The sanctuary, its theme is restoration. When we understand the sanctuary is our interpretive key, it brings balance to our understanding of the gospel. And the reason for confusion regarding the gospel today is because we are not using the entire sanctuary for our understanding. Evangelicals camp out in the courtyard. I affirm the beauty of justification by faith, but we cannot get a discount on the sanctuary. Our evangelical friends frame their entire gospel in the courtyard. I studied systematic theology. I studied Luther. There was one book that Luther did not like, the book of James. Why? Because he centered his whole theology in the courtyard. I call it courtyard theology. It's a 66% discount on the sanctuary. They take away two-thirds. Courtyard theology. I want to affirm the beauty of justification by faith and what happened at the cross. But in order to understand what Jesus did after the cross, you need to use the rest of the sanctuary. Amen? Amen. Our Catholic friends camp out in the holy place. Sanctification through the seven sacraments. They have not experienced the joy of the courtyard. They are trying to meritoriously work their way to heaven. John Wesley came along and he said, let's do a synthesis. We need to affirm the beauty of the courtyard. We need to affirm the beauty of the holy place. We need both justification and sanctification, and they are both by faith. Adventists came along and said, we want to affirm the beauty of the courtyard. We want to affirm the beauty of the holy place. And we want to affirm the reality of the most holy place experience. The revolution of Adventism is that we had the audacity to use the entire sanctuary to understand the gospel. And that is the significant contribution of the sanctuary. But some in our ranks are going backwards 
and not forwards. Some of our beloved brothers and sisters are doing courtyard theology to the negation of the rest of the sanctuary. It's the reduction of the gospel to the courtyard, an Adventist version of evangelicalism. Some of our beloved Adventist brothers and sisters are doing holy place theology to the negation of the courtyard and trying to work their way to heaven through a created system of Adventist sacraments. These have not experienced the joy of the courtyard and the peace of justification by faith, and it's an Adventist version of Catholicism. When we do theology with the whole sanctuary, it gives us the litmus test to cut through the confusion today regarding the gospel. It keeps us safe from false dichotomies. I hear this all the time. Is it law or grace? Is it faith or works? Is it justification or sanctification? Is it what God is it what God does in you or for you? Is it the imputed or imparted righteousness of Christ? And I would say this is not either or, friends. This is both and. And when you look at the sanctuary, you will understand the proper place of each one of these things. We need to experience the courtyard so that we can experience what God does for us in sanctification. And friends, my appeal to you here this Sabbath is that when any gospel is presented, ask yourself, how does this fit into the sanctuary? And any gospel that does not fit into the sanctuary is a false gospel. When a gospel message is preached, we need to listen to and watch what is said and what is not said. We need to listen to what is left in and what is left out. And any gospel that emphasizes a portion of the sanctuary to the denial of the rest of the sanctuary is at best an incomplete gospel. The sanctuary is Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. There is no more a Christ-centered framework than the sanctuary. And the sanctuary answers the question, what is Jesus doing now? And there is no denomination in the world today that has a better understanding of what Christ is doing right now than Seventh-day Adventists. This is not a call for triumphalism, friends. This is not a time for arrogance. We should be shaking with humility with the recognition that God has entrusted us with the sacred truth. And so I could go unabashedly to my evangelical friend, to my Catholic friend, and say, do you love Jesus? They say, yes. 
Do you want to know what Jesus is doing right now? Could I share with you? It's found in the sanctuary. We're told in Great Controversy, page 409, the scripture, which above all others, had been both the foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith, was the declaration unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Ellen White says that the sanctuary is a pillar of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but she says that it is the central pillar. The implication is that if you remove the sanctuary, the entire foundation of Adventism begins to fall. It's no accident that in every generation, it seems every four years, the notion of the sanctuary has been, and I believe continue, will continue to be attacked within the Seventh-day Adventist church because the devil knows that if he can change and alter this distinctive doctrine and interpretive key, it will change the identity and mission of God's remnant church. Just before retiring in 1978, the General Conference President, Elder Robert H. Pearson, gave his final address to the church leadership attending the General, Council, General Conference Annual Council. There were winds of doctrine blowing in the church, and Robert Pearson, just about to retire, gave his final appeal. I want to read an excerpt from his last message to the Annual Council there in 1978. And I quote, Brethren and sisters, there are subtle forces that are beginning to stir. Regrettably, there are those in the church who belittle the inspiration of the total Bible, who scorn the first 11 chapters of Genesis, who question the spirit of prophecy's short chronology of the age of the earth, and who subtly and not so subtly attack the spirit of prophecy. There are some who point to the Reformers and contemporary theologians as a source and the norm for Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. There are those who allegedly are tired of hackneyed phrases of Adventism. There are those who wish to forget the standards of the church we love, there are those who covet and would court the favor of the evangelicals, those who would throw off the mantle of a peculiar people, and those who would go the way of the secular materialistic world. Fellow leaders, beloved brethren and sisters, don't let it happen. I appeal to you earnestly as I know how this morning, don't let it happen. End quote. This was the General Conference President, Robert H. Pearson, in 1978. Here we are in 2015. And friends, 
we cannot afford to wander in the wilderness another 40 years. It's time to go home. And in a time when the Protestant leaders of America are going back to Rome, God is calling for a generation of young people who will go back to the Bible. God is calling for a generation of young people who will have the audacity to use the whole sanctuary to complete what the Reformation began. My appeal to you this morning, is it your desire to answer that call? If that's your desire this morning as we prepare to close, I want to invite you to stand with me if you want to say, Lord, use me, mold me, make me an instrument, a vessel for the building up of your church here on earth. God is calling for a generation of young people who will be faithful to Scripture. God is calling for a generation of people that will have the character of Christ reflected in their lives. God is calling for a generation of young people who will read, understand, and apply the principles of the spirit of prophecy to their lives. God is calling for a generation who will use the sanctuary as the interpretive key for the gospel. My second appeal is this. I know that in a congregation of this size, there is someone here today that has not been baptized into the remnant church. You have not been baptized. But you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. Perhaps it's been a, several weeks. Perhaps it's been several days. Perhaps it's several months. You hear the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart saying, Be baptized. Make this step. Baptism is not graduation, friends. It doesn't mean that you've arrived. It means that God is calling you into the courtyard experience and you want to make that step. I want to invite you to come forward here this morning. You have not been baptized. You want to make that step and say, Lord Jesus, I want to prepare for baptism. I want to invite you to come forward at this time. If there's someone next to you, just tap them. They'll move. You can come down. God bless you, my friend. You have not been baptized. God bless you. You want to make that step into the waters of baptism and you'll say, God bless you. God bless you. Is there someone else? You are sitting here this morning and the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart today. Be baptized. God bless you. God bless you. Don't let what other people think determine where you're going to spend eternity. We're among friends here today. We're praying for you. You have not been baptized and you want to make that decision to prepare for baptism here this morning. God bless you, friends. God bless you. God bless you. Is there someone else? God bless you. You want to make the decision for baptism. Jesus is coming soon. Don't let this opportunity pass. The Bible says, Today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. God is speaking to you right now, and the best time to make a spiritual decision is today. Don't let this opportunity pass. God bless you, my friend. 
Those of you that have been baptized, you should be in a spirit of prayer right now for those people that are in the valley of decision here this morning. Eternal decisions are being made. You have not been baptized. God bless you. God bless you. I know there's someone else sitting, standing right there, and you are wrestling with the Lord. The Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. Don't let this opportunity pass. Tomorrow is not assured. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, I will come in. Jesus is knocking, friends. This is not Pastor Shin making the appeal. Jesus is calling you. Jesus left heaven for you. Won't you come forward for him? Baptism. God bless you, sister. That appeal is still open. My second appeal is this. There's an area of your life that God is calling you to surrender. Perhaps it's a habit. Perhaps it's an addiction. Perhaps it's a good thing that is keeping you from God. And you've heard the Holy Spirit speaking to you, saying, it's time to lay that area of your life on the altar. I want to surrender. You want to pray the prayer, take my heart because I can't give it. I love this area of my life, Lord, take it from me. There's an area of my life that I need to surrender to Jesus. And you want the victory. I want to invite you to come forward here this morning. There's an area of your life that God is calling you to lay on the altar here this morning. 2015, the first Sabbath of GYC, and you want to say, Lord Jesus, I am tired of hanging on to this area of my life. I want to lay it on the altar here this morning. Jesus, save me. I cannot save myself. I am tired of fighting you. I surrender. I want to lay this area on the altar here this morning. We cannot hold back. God wants to use us as his vessel, but we cannot cherish any area of my life. And you want to say, Lord Jesus, take my heart because I cannot give it. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Help me. Do for me what I'm incapable of doing on my own. God bless you, friends. Jesus heals. Jesus saves. Jesus restores. Amen. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the sanctuary. Help us as a people to be faithful to the truths that you've entrusted us with. Lord, we don't want to wander in the wilderness another 40 years. We want to go home. Help us by your grace. I pray for the people that have come forward here this morning for baptism. Lord, we know that heaven is rejoicing right now. I pray that you'd seal their decision with the Holy Spirit. I pray for the people that have come forward surrendering an area of their life to you. 
I pray that you would grant them the victory. We know that Jesus saves from the penalty and the power of sin. We pray that you'd grant them the victory over this area of their life. May you work in and through them to grant them power from on high. Now unto him that is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.